Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Alex Avila with Love University, and we're back. I'm an author, psychologist, and speaker. Every week, we talk about how to love ourselves, others, and a higher nature, how to improve our finances, career, health, relationships, and spirituality. And we have a very fascinating guest this morning. We have David Ambrose. He's a graduate from UCLA School of Law. He's a national poverty and child welfare expert and advocate, recognized by President Obama as an American champion. He, he has served as the head of community engagement for Amazon. I think you're still there. And he's also led corporate social responsibility for Walt Disney Television and served as the president of the Los Angeles City Planning Commission. He's a member of the California Children Welfare Council and the author of a very fascinating book, which I have here and you think you have in the background, A Place Called Home. Welcome, oh David, to the show. Thank you so much, and, and thank you for that introduction. I, I'm going to have you do my Tinder profile later. Of course. There you go. That sounds good. Well, you know I do the, the relationships. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so basically, you have a fascinating story. Apparently, you were homeless as a child, and I think you served for about 12 years, and then you became a foster kid for another six or so. Mm-hmm. And with your mother and siblings, you're walking around, I guess, the streets of it was in New York, I believe. That's correct. Yeah. Subways and um, and bathing and in different public places and and uh, kind of very difficult, very, very um, challenging upbringing. Yeah. And even your mother was mentally ill and you said she tried to kill you at one time. Yeah. Uh, my story began, uh, you know, like you said, I was born into homelessness living uh, on the streets of Manhattan in the late 70s, early 80s. And it was a very dangerous and unsafe and unhappy and uh, impoverishing place. My mom suffers from different mental health issues and mm. has gotten worse over time. And, and we can talk about where she is today. Yes. Um, but uh, I had to learn to survive with my brother, sister, and my mom right. uh, for 12 years in the streets of New York City. Mm. Wow. Would you say she has uh, maybe schizophrenia? Do you know what they diagnosed her with? You know, she has a uh, a few things that affect her, including schizophrenic. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's called schizo uh, um, uh, affective disorder today. Affective disorder. Okay, so um, kind of emotionally detached and everything, and from the world kind of thing. You know, it wasn't any one thing. So unfortunately, she had kind of a list of issues that evolved over time. It could be depression. It could be um, any host of things in terms of um, what she might be going through. And sometimes uh, different issues would come to the top in terms of her mental health. So she might become, um, in my mind, although not a diagnosis, catatonic. And that was also very challenging for young children to navigate. Yes, I can understand. So, uh, yeah, that sounds like a very difficult um, upbringing, especially uh, a lot of homeless people, a certain percentage may have mental illness. And uh, as a child, you probably didn't understand what was going on. But then later on, I think as you grow older, you said you found a wonderful foster family mm-hmm. and that instilled in you the possibility of going to college and you actually end up going to Vassar and then UCLA School of Law, which is an amazing accomplishment. How did all that turn around? Because that's an amazing uh, Yeah. You know, I credit my mom. My mom has three children with advanced degrees. When you say mom, you're talking about your adopted mom. No, my, my biological mom. Oh, your biological mom. Yeah, oh, okay. the only common ingredient with the three children that my mom had is my mom and yes. all three of us who lived with her for more than a decade, yes. went on to have advanced degrees, despite wow. the fact that less than 50% of foster youth graduate high school. Oh. Okay. And my foster family that you're identifying are wonderful. In fact, they're pictured here next to me uh-huh. uh, alongside my, my uh, biological family. Hmm. They were a miracle, but they also were short in terms of oh. the point that I was able to stay with them. Oh. So I think the common thing and the thing that lit the flame inside all of us, my mom's children, oh. was 
her belief in us, despite not sending us to school, oh. that the only way out of poverty was through education. And she would she would hammer that into us. And I mean that figuratively wow. and literally. I see. And that lit a flame and, and foster care quite often tried to blow it out. Poverty tried to blow it out. Wow. But I knew that if I wanted to crawl the heck out of this system of violence yes. and deprivation, I needed right. to be armed. And that armament meant my education. Wow. That's an amazing thing because you say on one side, she was mentally ill and tried to kill you and you're on the streets. On the other side, she supported you and helped you. How, sure. how did that dichotomy work? It seems like. You know, that's, that's just, you're, you're, I could ask you that question. You know, <laughs> mental health is uh, many things. Sometimes it's sunny. Sometimes it's cloudy. Sometimes it's partially cloudy. And my mom was like that. My mom constantly uh, inculcated us this, this belief hmm. that we would, David, you're going to be a Supreme Court justice. Wow. Alex, you're going yes. to be a doctor. And yes. she would say things like that. Probably. And, or she would say to me, um, you know, I give you the stars. And she gave my brother wow. the sun and my sister the moon. And we would be homeless and we would be trucking around a book and we would have uh, to read it to her. In the book, I talk about um, one mem- one book that I remember reading to her and not understanding really was uh, Moby Dick. Oh. She made me read to her. And wow. when sometimes she would leave us for a long stretches of times uh, unsupervised at public libraries. Okay. And... I learned to read at public libraries. Um, I learned to bathe at public libraries. Public libraries are very important to me. So my mom is the one that lit this flame. My mom is an educated woman who unfortunately was afflicted by progressively uh, uh, affecting mental health disorder. It doesn't affect the fact that she's incredibly intelligent. Uh, I think the very slim border between genius and insanity is much more uh, yes. slender than we might imagine. And my so, mom is yeah. a genius. Exactly. A lot of uh, some geniuses sort of have what we call mania. You know, this is extreme, yeah. exaggerated uh, thought process, and then they can crash into depression. Uh, but you know, it's kind of a you got to balance it. Absolutely. But, you know, for intelligence, they say it's uh, maybe 50 50 percent genetic, fifty percent environmental. You know, they've mm. done the studies with the monozygotic twins, identical twins, and they they're separated uh-huh. at birth. One of them lives in a, a poor area. The other one lives in a mm. social economic class. And they often turn out to be similar in intelligence. Mm. Uh, so you might have, do you have genetic background? Your mom is very brilliant. Do you have other family members that were very? Uh, you know, my brother and sister and I don't have the same father. They do. I do not. And other than that, you know, our, our common ingredient is my mom. And I would say it's right. 50, 50 plus 50. The other 50% uh. is complete uh, luck oh. and happenstance. Uh. And sometimes uh. luck doesn't look like luck. Uh, sometimes uh, okay. luck is a very uh, painful experience. Yes. Um, as I've had that have turned me into someone who's very determined at right. the time, you know, going through uh, the experiences of violence in foster care didn't feel like luck, but it helped yes. me become the man that I am today, which wow. has helped me be successful in my life. And I don't mean financially, although that too, Yes. but I think these experiences also. So 50, 50 and 50, sir, I say we, we are a uh, fuller than a hundred percent people. Interesting. Okay. But there's some people say you can make your own luck. Like if mm. you're an optimist, uh, there's a guy named Wiseman. I don't know if you heard about him. He's Mm-mm. studied lucky and unlucky people oh. in life. You know, people that get into car accidents uh, and, um, you know, lose relationships. Other people win the lottery, you know, they seem to be lucky. And one ingredient they had is they're, they're optimists. They always look for the best in situations. Uh, in mm. fact, they did a study where they, they asked people who are rated as, as um, a lucky and unlucky. Imagine you're in a bank and in walks in a robber. They shoot in the air and they hit you in the shoulder. Is that lucky or unlucky? Now I'm going to ask you, David, what would you say to that? Um, hmm. It shot me in the shoulder. I would yes. say it's probably lucky. Okay. Now, now the, the people who are like pessimistic or unlucky would say, well, you know, I was minding my own business and I was shot. You know, it was unlucky. 
Lucky people, uh, I mean, people who are lucky in life would say, hey, you know, that's actually uh, kind of uh, good because I could have been shot in the head and killed. <laughs> and plus, I'm going to be on the news tonight and talk about my business. And get Oy vey. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the, you know, the kind of the idea. Are you uh, Jewish, by the way, uh, David? Uh, I am. I have okay. found I heard Ove. I was thinking that's a Jewish term or something. Well, like. I'm from New York, so I think oh, I everyone <laughs> in New York speaks a little bit of Yiddish or Hebrew. Uh, okay. Over time, you start to absorb it, as has America. I I get it. Now, there's a study they did on um, overcoming the odds. It talks about mm-hmm. children who are coming from similar abused backgrounds. About a third of them came from high-risk environments where the mom was a drug addict. They removed them and, and violence and stuff like that. And out of those one-third, one-third of them were highly resilient. And they overcame the mm-hmm. odds. They ended up having good careers and families and, and success. And they found three factors. So I'm curious if you have any of these three factors in the kids that didn't make it out. One of them is that they had a talent. They had some uniqueness about them. Maybe it was a writing, a science, athletics, whatever it was, intellectual. And number two is they had a personality that was kind of cheerful, you know, that people kind of got along with them and liked them. And number three, they had a mentor, which may have been not necessarily the parent, could have been a grandparent, a coach, a teacher, a pastor. Did you have any of those three elements in your case? At any one moment, maybe. Throughout, um, the, you know, throughout the time. You know. I, I, you know, with respect, I reject all those studies. I I think the idea that we're going to roadmap resiliency is nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, the system that I went through, people always try and say to me, well, if you did it, we right. can identify the characteristics of mm-hmm. you, and then we right. can map that on and determine this yes. pathway or that pathway for this individual. Right. That's absurd. People are a giant, messy pile, mm-hmm. and we need to develop a foster care system and a poverty reduction system that embraces the messiness of the human condition. Mm-hmm. Not try and roadmap and, and encourage folks to follow my line. You know, one of them, for example, that you mentioned is a personality that uh, people react well to, you know, optimistic, what have you. That's a pet. And yes, you know, when you're in a system where you're deprived or experiencing violence, um, you want to exude and perform Mm -hmm. to reduce those violence or to increase Mm -hmm. the calories that you get allocated. Mm -hmm. It's called being a pet. And Uh, how do you you spell that? P-E-T? Yeah, just being a pet, like a dog. Oh, I see. Okay. My dog is super cute. And when uh, he wants to go for a walk, okay. he looks at me and he tilts I his see. head to the left. Right, he's like, perform. Come on. He gives me the cute puppy face. Mm. Sure. I'm I got good at that because uh, I was starving. Uh, um, I I don't know innately if I'm one thing or another in terms of my personality. How could I know? You know? Right. Um, but I would say I understand the social science of trying to understand that. But I, what I worry about mm is that then there's some sort of shortcut in the minds of people right. that we can roadmap resiliency or whatever you want to call it, the bootstraps, mm-hmm. and then apply that to children and families experiencing poverty and crisis. Right. Right. And in reality, we just need to design the system robust mm-hmm. enough that if you were in it and all of your messiness, mm-hmm. uh, listener, that you too would get the services you need to achieve whatever it is you can, especially with children. And we right. try and leverage adult be- behaviors mm-hmm. Right. At the expense of the child. Mm-hmm. And I think we we should not roadmap and look for these things because what made me, me, is nothing that any child should ever have to experience. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. Very, very powerful. So talking about that in terms of resilience, but there's the other factor is like overcoming trauma. And I work a lot with trauma victims. You know, I'm a forensic psychologist, so we do a lot of people that have been victims and crime or, or assaults or also accidents. And um, we just find there's certain factors that help people recover. One of them is um, gratitude. Having a sense that, you know, I'm grateful for whatever, you know, for higher power or whatever it is, uh, or for, for people that help me along the way. 
And another one is a, a meaning, you know, finding some kind of meaning in, in the suffering. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a woman actually that she had a, a son, her only son, went away to college back east and then came back at three years. You know, she hadn't really seen him. And then she was very excited to have him come back. You know, he did graduate. Uh, one night he went out with his um, family members uh, to celebrate and he saw a girl he liked. He made a comment and then they took it the wrong way. She came back with her family members and beat the, the young man to death. Mm. He killed you imagine the mother was devastated. You know, she was crying. This is, you know, her only son. But, you know, through counseling, she realized that her passion was children. So she ended up becoming a foster mother. And she was able to give love to other children that also lost her parents. So that helped her actually recover. Um, is there any sense of meaning that you discover from this or even gratitude in some ways from your experience? I, I get asked that question differently in different ways. It puts on different outfits. Uh, one of them is, um, would you change your life? Hmm. Um, and the answer to that is no. I look around and I see most people sleepwalking through life, mostly anesthetized with yes. no sense of purpose or mission, and they're living life. And that doesn't make them a bad person or a better person than me or worse right. person than anybody else. It's just the way they live. Yes. Um, that's not who I am and somewhat to my own detriment at times. It doesn't make me better. Hmm. But I think about the experiences I had and what I try to do with all of them is use them use them to advance change. And that is really the title of the memoir is a place called home. My home is this mission. It's not four walls and a ceiling. It's not any one individual. It's the idea that I have a purpose and I can do something with this experience. And in this work, I find life. I find the universe. Mm -hmm. I find my version of God. And I I find that very fulfilling. Mm -hmm. I wasn't always, uh, I would say as enlightened, you know, I, I think, uh, Probably the woman you mentioned probably had a you know at least a month or seven journey to get from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. When I entered foster care uh, at the age of twelve, I went into a very violent situation, and until I was thirty-seven, I never cried, not once. Oh, wow. And that was not healthy. And uh, it took me until my thirty-seventh year to feel safe enough and have the resources and uh, support in order to do some excavation, to go back and shore up my foundation in order to build further and higher. And that took a lot. So I don't know what, I can't write off those 20 years of my life as not being valuable in some way. It's what got me where I am. But I do know that uh, a lot of young people, when we say the word resiliency, Mm -hmm. there's almost this thing that you're over it and whatever that experience is, and you're never over it. I'm not over it. Mm -hmm. I still choke up when I speak about some of the stories that I share, both in the memoir and and other. I think vulnerability is a superpower. So what do I, how do I look at my life? I look at my life as the fire that forged me, unfortunate Mm -hmm. and painful at times, Mm -hmm. uh, but also full of love. My mom loved us. Mm -hmm. My mom loved us. As I say in the book, my mom loved us as often as she hit us. And uh, I look at her mental health issue almost as if she had a cancer. Mm. I would not be mad at her for growing a tumor. And I'm not mad at her. I choose not to be mad at her because of the way that she acted uh, out her mental health issues upon us. It doesn't mean I don't experience pain, but I don't know if that's innate or learned behavior. I think of it like yoga. I have to practice forgiveness and I have to practice vulnerability. And I put on my comfortable pants and I do those things. and, And that helps me be a little more happy each day. Yeah, I mean, the power of unconditional love is very fascinating. Mm-hmm. And we don't see it. We see it with uh, animals and, uh, you know, their owners, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see it with parents and their small children. 
But then oftentimes things change when you get adult relationships. Mm. Uh, it's more conditional. But it sounds like you have unconditional love for your mother. I choose to. Yes. I choose to. I think, you know, for me, uh, as I open the book, um, a dedication to my mom, my mom who taught me to forgive mm. and to conquer one impossible thing at a time. Uh-huh. And I am my mom's caregiver today. Oh, okay. I've been for more than two decades. Wow. And how and why? I, mm. Because my mom, again, is ill. And I love her and I, I have to take care of my mom Mm. and that is responsibility and a blessing in my life that I, I think makes me who I am. And also, um, like many of the experiences I had in my life has taught me so many things that I can apply outside of that space, but it's, it's not easy. And uh, for many people with a family member suffering from mental health issues, Mm. it's brutal. Yes. Uh, But the word family does not mean cupcakes or holidays. Mm. It means the good, the bad, the ugly. Right. And for my mom, who's been in a damn prison for 80 years, suffering uh, her health issues, her mental health issues, sure. um, I have to have that compassion. I have to have that unconditional love. Mm-hmm. And I choose to. Very powerful. Now, you also mentioned uh, that 18 to 20% of children in foster care are LGBTQ+. And you said it may make them a target for cruelty. You even mentioned that mm-hmm. you were put in, um, I think, some kind of criminal facility or something mm-hmm. as a kid and you were abused. Um, tell us about that and, and how that turned out. Well, first I would say, just to correct the number, it's 30% of foster youth identify as LGBTQIA+. I'm going to use the word queer going forward because that, okay. that alphabet is hard for me to remember every letter. And I want to um, be inclusive. Mm-hmm. As a queer kid, when I was growing up, it was a diagnosis. Hmm. And you were treated in most yes. places. DSM five, and, I guess, or DSM three, probably in those days. Yep. And it was it was under gender identification disorder hmm. or gender dysmorphia. Hmm. And it was broadly applied to queer kids, not just kids that might have not been trans, but right. but queer. Hmm. And so I went through a rigorous attempt to make me less gay, uh, through various means, hmm. um, violence, uh, therapy, hmm. um, malpractice in my opinion. But at the time, what we have to remember is it's not the system that was bad. It was our country. We criminalized gay sex in 38 states. We outlawed uh, the very existence of people and disallowed them the opportunity to foster, adopt, uh, be certain professions. Uh, We couldn't serve openly in the military. Our country made it very clear. And even when I was a kid growing up, society did. I I grew up in New York City in the early, early 80s. And I remember in the shelters, they'd have areas where the people dying from grid or what we later called HIV AIDS, were segregated, wow. on the street abandoned. And that was that was an early lesson. So when I got came into foster care, it was well reinforced by society um, that this was a problem. And then the actors within uh, the state then sought to help me, in their mind, uh, get over my illness. So it was a rather brutal system. But what you asked earlier, so insightful, I decided... To come out in one sphere of my life, which is my policy advocacy. And at the time before social media, you could do that. Hmm. And I worked with a group called the Joint Initiative with Lambda Legal and the Child Welfare League of America to begin a more than decade-long process to reverse that federal policy by which the government would reimburse states hmm. for that type of behavior therapy or malpractice in my mind. And it took a very long time. But that sense of mission and purpose gave that whole experience at least something to me. And it doesn't mean I liked it, uh, any of it, but it helped me understand it. And, you know, I, I don't know that it needed to happen to make me a champion. 
uh, for that issue, but it certainly lit a fire in my heart and my soul. And, and it's still work that I do today. Kids are much better off today that are queer in the system. However, 30% of the kids in foster care, triple the general population identifies queer. Why? Well, look at the news. We're being debated. Our healthcare is being taken away. And kids hear this and parents see this. And systems and societies have effects on children and the children are not all right. So it's better today, but we're just seeing this endless right. debate of the very humanity of children that are queer. Yes, it's very, uh, very uh, challenging. Now, the other component, it seems like you have a lot of moving parts here. You have poverty, you have uh, homelessness, and then, of course, foster care and adoption and all that. But homelessness, apparently in Los Angeles, I see a lot of more homeless people these days. You probably do too, right? You live in the area. And then you say people may look away from them. I always ask people, would you give uh, money to homeless? And some people say, no, because they're on drugs, but I do believe we can help them. So what do you think about the, that issue here um, in Los Angeles in general? Uh, the idea of, uh, you know, the homeless people out there and how do, sure. how do people react to them? Well, first, I would say that all the issues I focus on really stem from the same trunk of a tree. The trunk is poverty. Mm. All of the things that come off that trunk, all the branches and leaves are related to the intergenerational transfer of poverty and violence, mm. which we so readily inherit. Right. We don't interrupt it. So symptoms like foster care, which is the failure of various other social welfare safety nets where they capture the child, the innocent, um, are then failing. And so you get the inheritance again. Mm. Homelessness is a symptom of a criminalization of poverty mm. and the perpetuation of poverty in our society. My memoir and my mission in life is about poverty. I choose oh. to focus on foster care as an opportunity to stop that inheritance. Homelessness is a key part of that. Why? A third of the homeless in uh, California are former foster youth between the ages of 16 and 24. Half of the homeless in the United States of America, half, 50% of the homeless in the United States were at some point in foster care. Hmm. Wow. Why focus on foster care? Because it's the largest group in homelessness. They're not chronic. They're not addicted, uh, especially the younger ones. Hmm. And they actually have resources. So instead of at 18, dumping them on the street, what if we built a dorm at LA City College or a community college? And so they could go get a two-year transfer or vocational degree. Right. What if we stopped the pipeline of misery and violence and instead gave them a degree? We could do that tomorrow. We spend billions of dollars. We just need to build the dorm. So I think there are really ready solutions out there. And we do focus on probably the harder cases as we should. But what if we looked at almost a third today in California and said, we have a solution. We already give them $1,000 a month for rent through the extension of foster care to 21. Thank you, Assembly Leader Bass back in the day. We already provide them health care to 26. Thank you, President Obama. We already provide them Social Security disability income. We already provide them CalFresh to the end of the 21st year. Now, I believe longer. They don't have a place to live. What if we took a third every year off the street and turned off that pipeline? You could focus on the harder cases. So why do I focus on homelessness? Why do I think these things are intersected? Because they are. And if we look at them that way, we can actually solve these issues. There are solutions. And would I give money to a homeless person? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I do it all the time. Yep. But, mm -hmm. however, mm -hmm. I also look at other ways to intervene. The answer is both. Mm -hmm. And there's not some sort of litmus test that makes you better or worse. The question is, instead of saying, I can't because, 
we need to say, I can't because, but I will do X. Hmm. And what is X? X is whatever's right for you. Attend one meeting a year about whatever body in your area works on homelessness or foster care. One meeting a year, go to the school board meeting. Ask a question about how they help homeless children in that school system. Volunteer. Google the word foster care in your, your town or city. Just spend an hour a year. And if the very worst, I like to say, donate your small talk. That's a campaign I'm running right now on PSAs across the country. It's called Uh Donate Your Small Talk. Uh Instead of talking about what you had for lunch, what your kids are up to, where you're going that weekend, talk about a fun fact about something that you care about with children. So I always like to say, did you know that Cher was a foster kid? Ah, that's right. Quite a few. Uh, Nelson Mandela, Maya Angelou, Steve Jobs adopted out of foster care, I believe. I think also, if I recall. Harry Potter. So (laughs) can we donate our small talk to rebrand and talk about this issue? What if we centered children in our conversation instead of salads? Mm, Very fascinating. I like that. And the other thing, David, um, is, uh, well, talking about poverty, this is something that was very startling. I think you said this statistic. You said 50% of children in poverty become Adults in poverty by the age 35. I thought that was mm-hmm. very amazing statistic. So it's like they're stuck in it. They can't get out. Yeah. And, and it's startling. Pretty, is that true? Yeah. And the other thing is, um, I think you start giving me some advice in your book. I believe you talk about having kind of empathy. Uh, you said, if imagine if you're a child or someone, a child you love is in foster care, how would you want them to be treated? Or what if you were a child in foster care? So I see that as putting yourself in another person's shoes. And also, I see a homeless person. What if you may be homeless, you know, possibly? Uh, how would you feel? And uh, there is a guy on my show, uh, Ricardo Blanco. I don't know if you heard of him. He's an um, inaugural poet for Obama. Uh, mm-hmm. He's the first gay Latino, actually, Cuban-American guy. And his poem was One, uh, one Today. I don't know if you heard of that mm-hmm. one. Yeah. Uh, we're, you know, we're all connected, you know, and, yeah. and culturally. And, you know, we're all Americans, basically. So that was beautiful. And uh, is that a, a part of what you're talking about, is the empathy component? That is a beautiful uh, connection. Yes. Um, I always think about poverty programs in our country as kind of like if you're like a victim drowning off the side of a boat mm-hmm. and you're like trying to tread water, you're super tired, you're going under, you're coming up. Right. And then this boat comes along and it's there. And the first person in the boat lifts you partway out of the water and you go, <gasps> and then they drop you <laughs> and you go back mm-hmm. in the water. And the person says, don't worry, there's someone right behind me. It's another program. Mm-hmm. And there's an endless array of programs. And the programs are all there to, quote unquote, help the person that's experiencing poverty. Right. But what we forget is people are not silos. People are interconnected, messy piles of humanity, and it's beautiful. And what we have to design is a system that we are so sure that if we needed it, it would be there for us, our children, our loved ones. And I think that interconnectedness that he mentions and that you brought up is is so beautiful and so apt. That's exactly right. I ask people to close their eyes, not figuratively, literally, and say, Picture yourself or your child homeless. Mm. What what is the next thing that the government does? Mm. What does it look like? How much budget does it have? What then happens? What system kicks in? And then take that experience in your eyes closed all the way through that person being healthy, healthy, happy, and successful. And if you don't think that's a system we have today, then we have to design it. Because like he does, I too believe in this inherent goodness of the American people. And despite everything in my life and all the adults that didn't act, all the society that failed to act and all the violence done to me, I profoundly believe that we are, for the most part, an amazing, good people. And we have to channel that. I don't know what happened. 10 years before I was born, 
we sent a person to the moon. Mm. We did that as a country, not as a company. And somewhere between that and when I was a kid, we forgot that muscle that we together can do big things to lift each other up mm. in advance. And I want us to remember that muscle that we are collectively responsible for each other. Yeah. And I think we inherently do. And you see it, you see it all the time, actually. So when a disaster hits, you see this automatic instincts that we have to help each other. It's almost like the kettle is boiling and, and it, it spills over when these moments come, yes. when it's crystal right. clear what we need to do. Right. We just need that, that, that emotion and that knowledge and that DNA in the American people to come out because the kids, there's 8.4 million children in poverty today in this country. Oh. One out of four kids is hungry. The crisis is now, and it's been going on for a minute. And I think that goodness is there. And we just need to tap into it, encourage people to get involved and inspire them to do so. That's very interesting. Now, the other thing is you have some very interesting suggestions. I don't know if they're even in law right now, but you said to have more dedicated social workers, have a some kind of maybe loan forgiveness mm -hmm. for them, um, loan, yeah. home loan assistance to help them, I guess, do their work better. Yeah. Uh, you talk about having diverse uh, foster parents, different cultures, socioeconomic Certainly. status, and all this stuff. So even like higher socioeconomic status, because we think of foster parents maybe as not maybe higher socioeconomic status, but why is that important as well? So I, I, I th thank you for raising it. The afterword of my memoir, I call my memoir a memoir with a mission, yes. is a very legible, readable, enjoyable policy document. Yes. And I mentioned, I mentioned foster parents, social workers, and foster youth and biological parents. Yes. Social workers, I asked my, so my sister, who's a social worker one time, I said, what do you do for work? And she said, paperwork. <laughs> uh, and I think to myself, like, gosh, here's a woman who has a graduate degree that can't even afford to buy a home anywhere near where she works. Mm. So how do we incentivize people to come into this profession on the front lines of this war and poverty? Yes. We evangelize and honor veterans for serving, but my sister is serving in a very challenging, emotionally fraught, uh, sometimes violent profession, and we underpay her. What if instead we didn't? What if after 10 years of service, we gave them interest-free loans? What if for foster parents uh, that might want to foster but don't because they're worried about pension, they're worried about their kids going to college, they're worried about health care, what if we made these prospective foster parents after a few years of good service, what if we made them federal employees or county employees for purposes of benefits? What if you were considering fostering and you had so much love to give, but you were worried about having to work extra hours to put your kid through college? What if after 10 years of good service, your kid goes to any state school for free? Hmm. All of a sudden, you flood the court with people who, as I mentioned earlier, are good people that want to do this work, but are held back by financial considerations. And then same thing with foster youth and biological families. We have to stop saying horrible things about these families. Two-thirds of the kids entering foster care, two-thirds are there because of neglect. Mm. Neglect is a euphemism for poverty, which is a euphemism in our country for racism. We've criminalized poverty. Mom, lost the, mom can't pay the rent. Dad lost a job. The car needs a repair. They don't have enough food. Right. There's no babysitter. We take the kid away. And then we put them in a system, which is very expensive. Right. And then we spit them out the other end. When you leave foster care, it's called emancipation, which mm. is a horribly apt analogy. And when you leave the system, you're more likely to die than go to college. Wow. You're more likely to become pregnant within a year. 70 plus percent of the girls become pregnant. 60% of the boys will, will go to jail at some point. Wow. 
Can't we do better? Yes. Let's keep those two thirds or whatever percentage of them that's appropriate from coming into the system in the first place. And the way that you do that is you do wraparound support for those parents, those biological parents. Right. Stop criminalizing things that they can't control. Help them and thereby help their children and thereby end the cycle of poverty and violence. And for those kids that then have to go into the system, you're going to have a system under less stress. And therefore, you'll be able to help those kids because you've also brought in more foster parents and social workers mm. that aren't burnt out, that are economically rewarded for amazing work, and yes. that are cherished and honored for the contribution they make to our country. Thank you. So you, you value psychology and social work. and Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Now, the other thing, I think you also mentioned uh, having uh, some kind of uh, housing for uh, foster kids that go to college, like the dormitories, because you said they could get to college, but maybe they end up even homeless if they can't live somewhere. So is that another program you're working on? Absolutely. And I'm working very hard here in Los Angeles to do that. Um, so essentially, you know, 50% of the foster kids, there's a lot of numbers today, folks. I know. Yeah. Well, uh, you're a lawyer, so you like that stuff, right? I do. And I'm also <laughs> just, you know, a consumer of news and information. Number guy. <laughs> um, 50% of foster kids are graduating high school. Where are they going? Oh. I just oh. told you where they're going. Mm. What if instead of homelessness, mm. what if there was a dorm waiting? Not a shelter. Right. A dorm that these children automatically could go into. And they had a couple of years to get their associate's degree, to get a vocational certification, or to go on to transfer to a four-year. What if we did that automatically as a default? All of a sudden, you turn off the pipeline, which is both a moral and economic shame and stain. What if instead they went to college? Wouldn't we all like that better, both because we're a good people but also because we have a vocational crisis. We don't have a lawyer crisis. There's plenty of us. What if all of a sudden you stabilize the enrollment of a community college? And why does it make sense? We own the land. These are the state's children, which means ours. And this fulfills an economic niche, which is not otherwise filled, which we need to fill as a society. And you end that young person's intergenerational inheritance of poverty and violence. And every year, we could do that by the tens of thousands. And we could take that 8.4 million and aggressively shrink it person by person by person, child by child. And we can do it. There are 130 community colleges in California, just three to five dorms. We would end the poverty that we are passing on to these children. A couple across the country would do the same. So yes, I'm working on this idea. It goes to my earlier conversation where you mentioned, why do I focus on foster youth and poverty? I focus on poverty because at the root, if we root, if we pull it out, out of the ground, that, that will die. And we can focus on helping people achieve whatever it is they want to or can. And I'm very optimistic that we can do it. And that's why I'm working to build that dorm. I see. I like that. Now, one thing I've noticed, a thread, a little bit of your story. Actually, I had another guy on my show at the LA Book Festival, I think you were at, uh, mm -hmm. is a guy named Jesse Leon. And he wrote a book called I Am Not Broken. He has a tremendous story. He was sexually abused as a young kid, ended up uh, gang-affiliated, uh, violence, drug addiction, the worst possible circumstances. But he loved to read, and they called him a nerd. He was like a, a cholo that loved to read. And then he ended up um, going to community college, and then he went to Berkeley mm. and from Harvard Graduate School. Now he's a, a very heard of it. big business guy. Yeah. <laughs> so it's amazing, but the, the power of reading yeah, And you said you love to read, and I love libraries. I used to walk a mile to a library just to get a bunch of books when I was a little kid. Uh, but today, I don't know if that's happening. Uh, are people still reading books? 
or even though it's maybe different the way they read it. You know? Oh, good, sir. Good doctor. I have to challenge your question. Yes. I think what we have to look at is not reading. Uh, learning? I think what we have to look at is storytelling. Oh, okay. And us old people, mm-hmm. as I have a bookshelf behind me with a couple of my favorite books over the last uh-huh. year, yes. we're like, let's read. Right. What we're really talking about is storytelling. And humans evolved verbally, morally mm-hmm. sharing stories. It's only in the last couple, like, I don't know, what is it, 700 years, we've started sharing right. written word, which is beautiful. I'm a big proponent, and I hope a lot of people buy the memoir. Okay. However, I also know that young people are consuming stories differently than us. Right. On the, and, the, the devices and things. Yeah. Yes. And I, I, it's not my jam. No. But what if we look at it instead as a deficit as we're continuing to evolve as a people and the next evolution is thus. And right. we old people are like, what the heck is going on? This is trash. You know, Elvis and his hips. Okay. What if we look at it and say, wait a minute, what we're seeing is a revolution. And the young people, if we're smart enough to listen, will lead us. And what we have to share is it can't all be empty calories. And how are we contributing to that? And how are we helping them grow? And it doesn't mean abandoned reading. I think reading exercise is a different muscle. But I do hear this conversation where it's X versus Y, and I just disagree with that. I think consumption of storytelling is really what we're talking about. I don't like to consume short bits. It's not for me. I like to really get into a story. And I want to share that with people. However. I also recognize that we are borrowing this earth from children. We are we are just stewards. Right. And what looks different to us is their normal. And uh, maybe it's different than we see it at first. And maybe they're they're teaching us how to share stories differently. Right. So there, what um, if I put it, a chip in your head that gave you all the knowledge? Oh, my. Would you be okay with that or no? Uh, well, I think we're we're about 50 years from that. Uh, and would I be okay with that? Um, you know, I read a lot of sci-fi, <laughs> uh, a lot of science fiction books where that has occurred. Right. Pluses and minuses, good sir. Pluses and minuses. So um, I'd rather not anything in my head. I'm very oh. happy that um, there's no voices. There's no negativity. Right. I've had incredible therapy uh, recently. So would I be? Maybe. At the moment, I'm pretty damn happy with what's in there. And it's <laughs> it's operating in all cylinders. And I'm pretty happy. Okay, excellent. You know, I did an internship at a place called Concept7. It's a foster mm-hmm. care agency. I don't know it's in here in LA. And um, it's very interesting work. I know you mentioned a lot of uh, some celebrities, you know, like Stephen Jobs, I think Dr. Ruth and others, uh, Oprah. Share. Share, share. Okay. We're either adopted or guess foster care and all that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, some of the studies have shown that adoption can be actually even better psychologically for children than going back to the birth parents in some uh, situations because of the, you know, the, the, the parental care is sensitive and caring. But on the other hand, there are people that kind of denigrate. They say foster parents are in for the money. You know, they get a lot of money for the kids and all that. So how do you... Answer that question. So a couple ways. First, I would say when you when you slash the tires on a car and then you run around it and say, well, it doesn't go anywhere. Mm. Of course it doesn't. When you defund a system and overwhelm the people within the foster care system, social workers, foster parents, the courts, and then you run around the car and you say, well, look how terrible the outcomes are. Of course they're terrible. Mm. How You've slashed the tires on the car. You can't, you can't set the fire, then put it out. And, and be proud. So I, I reject that. We have defunded and underfunded schools, libraries, foster care, and then we're shocked at what's going on. So first of all, we need to fund public services and stop comparing things to an underfunded, underrespected, terrorized system. I don't, I don't agree with those comparisons. Um, so I think studies based on that are problematic, I would say. Not, not without merit, but, but problematic for that reason. Um, 
Foster care is a system designed to reunify families, folks, period. Right. Uh, it is not a, a an adoption uh, slippery slide. It is a system designed to reunify families. Why? Because to give the state the incredible power to break up families is something we should be very covetous over. And we are, and we are rightfully so. However, when we do need to take those kids away, when they are available for adoption, we need to make it much easier. Um, I think there's no one one pathway forward, which is going to be better for everybody. You know, any kid coming through the system is going to have a myriad of different things. But I look at those things and I say to myself, what if we fully funded amazing foster care? What if biological parents got the wraparound services they needed to, to be fully functional, healthy? Yes. What if we buried them in love and resources as a community? Mm. Wouldn't the kid be better off there? Probably. But instead, we make it impossible. We say, hey, go get drug drug tested, right. but we're not going to give you any transportation money. No, by the way, mm. your boss won't give you time off. Mm. And so then they miss their drug test, which means they don't get reunification services. Mm. What if instead we, we we looked at the system and said, what is in the best interest of the child? Sometimes it's reunification. Sometimes mm. it's a system. Sometimes it's adoption. Right. All should be on the table, mm. but we shouldn't terrorize or demonize people. And I never, ever denigrate the foster parents that I had, even the ones I write about in the book. Yes. And if I don't, most people should not. Mm. Questioning people's motives, mm. before you do that, we should all look in the mirror and say, what have I done? Because mm. at the very least, these people opened their homes to me. Yes. What have we done? Nothing. Mm. We stand aside, we yell at social workers when they mess up, and then we don't do anything else. We don't pay attention. We don't know the facts. Right. We're ignorant. So before we question the motives of people who open their homes for whatever reason, we should really have this first moment where we, we hold ourselves accountable. Second, I, David Ambrose, do not believe that. Mm. This is not Las Vegas in terms of the money you get. Mm. And, and the intrusion of the state into your home is so profound. Mm. And the other thing is there's all sorts of classist things in that statement right. about people's motivations and poverty. Because it's people that are poorer that are opening their homes. They're also disproportionately people of color. Ah. So there's all sorts of layered things in that thought mm. that people terrorize these folks who open up their mm. home. Instead of trying to kill Frankenstein, we need to realize that it's our monster mm. and he's not a monster. Oh. Um, and we need to hold ourselves accountable. So I always, not with you, but like, I hope people, when they listen to that, sure. pause and say, I'm going to stop asking that question. Mm. I'm going to see what I can do. And then once you've done that for a decade or seven, mm -hmm. then we can start having that conversation about others. You can start judging other people. Right. It doesn't mean not holding people accountable. Sure. So when I was in foster care, I tell the stories of, of incredible abuse mm. that I suffered at the hands of some foster parents and some delinquency facilities. Right. It does not mean not holding folks accountable. Mm -hmm. But as consumers of information from the outside, generally calling a group of people um, greedy or evil mm. is not helpful. That's not accountability. Right. In fact, that's keeping a lot of good people out of the system because they don't want to be associated with that. Sure. So let's do better. Let's do better. Let's step up. Let's donate our time. Let's think about something. What can we do? And then let's hold people accountable. But don't write off a whole people mm. uh, because of some bad actors. Yeah, that makes sense. And I'm thinking to open up your your home and your heart, that takes a lot of commitment, a lot of energy. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I assume a lot of them are loving. You know, They really love children or want to help absolutely uh so there's that uh, component and uh apparently you've had that experience right the loving absolutely. foster parents yeah holly and steve holly and steve i 
Um, give them so much credit for finding a young man that was coming through the foster care system pretty broken mm. and starting me on a pathway um, right. to where I am today. In fact, what if Holly and Steve would have said right at early age, we adopt you, what would you have done? I wasn't it? available for adoption. But I mean, um, if, if you were to say for some reason, would you? Um, you know, I think as a young person, I was asked that multiple times and I said right. I didn't want to be. Oh, okay. And it's not an either or situation. You know, I think we look at adoption as some sort of marriage. Hmm. And for me, my mom was my mom. Ah. And, you know, I don't know that my decision should have been dispositive or, or ruled the day. Right. Um, and I don't know that it did. So that would have been your first choice if she's, you know, your mom. I don't know why we need to even make that choice. I don't know why we have to have adoption, therefore no mom to has no rights. Hmm. Why is it not more blended? Hmm. Why does my mom lose everything? Why is the child forced to choose hmm. between hope and a past? I see. So um, you, have, you have both. You have the... The, the birth mom and the, and the adopted or whatever, the foster mom. Yes. Well, Why don't moms. we do it differently? <laughs> Why is it all or nothing with our yes. parents, Good our point. biological we, parents? Because yeah. you have more love now, right? You have two people that love you. That and also as a child, do you want to hurt your mom? And I think the answer to that is no. no. So asking that child that impossible question of like, do you want to punch your mom in the face by taking away you and you are the one doing it? Yes. No. So why do we have that choice? I think for some, it's the right choice. For some families that want to adopt, it's absolutely the right choice. But when I was young and I did get asked that question, I did not want to be adopted. I was afraid of what it would do to my mom. And I also didn't fully understand the repercussions of it. And when I was a young person also, although it's different today, when you were adopted, you lost services and benefits. Mm. That is no longer the case. So when I was coming up in my early teens, you wouldn't have gotten the stuff you got in order to go to college, for instance. Yes. So it was a question for me that was many layered. It did not mean I didn't love Holly and Steve. It yes. meant my foster parents. Right. It meant that it was more complicated. Right. You have more love in your heart. I mean, that's good to have, right? And, uh, in, I, in I have a ton in there, as you might <laughs> be able to tell. Do you have any animals, by the way? And uh, I have a dog who's sitting here right oh, with me, oh, buddy. Can, can, can you show, show the dog? Or? Um, or, yeah. Or? You're, I don't want to make you dizzy, though. Oh, okay. Is it... Uh, well, here. Hold on one sec. I'll show you my dog. All right. Let's take a look. Oh, wow. Okay. That looks like a little... What is that, by the way? This is Buddy. He is, is a rescue. Chihuahua? He's a uh, mix of some sort. Some Japanese chin. Kind of oh. like a King Charles Spaniel. I got him oh. 13 years ago. I was a uh, foster parent. There you go. Uh, and about I was that. just supposed to have him for a short time. <laughs> and uh, they called me... Yes. Well, you know what they call me? They call me a failed foster. Oh, wow. <laughs> Why? <laughs> So that's a lot of unconditional love, right? Like I was saying, right? The dog oh, yeah. and the human and the adult and the parent and the child. So that's kind of nice to have that. Yeah, right? especially as he's aged. I've had to like, you know, go even deeper into that well to yes. find the the um, gratitude and patience to see someone you love so much age. Yes, definitely. So, Deb, you have a lot of uh, wonderful things you're working on. Now, how about in terms of future projects? What are you excited about? I know you said um, you're working for a company now. Where do you mm-hmm. work at the moment? Yeah, so my day job, um, which I'll start shortly, is I work for Amazon, where I lead oh, community Amazon. engagement. Biggest company uh, in the world, pretty much. Yeah, I've heard. Uh, uh, I lead community engagement for part of the country. And in that uh, work, I try and help us uh, show up in the community through different ways, volunteerism, uh, philanthropic contributions, product donations, whatever whatever makes sense for the hyper-local community. Right. I've only been there a short time, a little less than two years. Okay. And before that, I worked at the Walt Disney Company for more oh. than a decade. Wow. And I led uh, corporate social responsibility for the media group, so the television and other properties. Hmm. And it, it's a career that I didn't even know existed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has 
brought me so much um, value in terms of my my heart because yes. I every day think about how to do good with the resources of these two amazing brands and now Amazon mm. and it aligns with both who I am as a person and also my passion. So, right. you know, do what you love, right? If yes. you can, yeah. and I'm blessed. I even got your that. book on Amazon. It took uh, one day. Hey, well now <laughs> you can leave a good review on Amazon, right? Cause it's going to help you find the book. Um, exactly. it's kind of nice. They've been very that. supportive of, of, uh, the memoir in terms of just mm. giving me the space yes. and the platform to do this. You want to write more books, uh, speak. Uh, yes. Anything I want to like speak <laughs> much more. I want to, I want to, I want to inspire people to move from empathy to action. I want to share my story and and weaponize it for good. Mm-hmm. I'm working on two projects. I'm working on one uh, about my mom. Oh, okay. Um, I think the work that you do and, and the work that we need to do as a country with regards to mental health yes. uh, is so profound. And so I, I'm working on a project about that, sure. sharing more about my mom. Mm-hmm. Um very personal. Um, and then I'm working on a um, science fiction book, a utopian oh. version. Oh, so you're going to write uh, a book. Oh, novelist about the chip in the head, but not really. No, but something not far <laughs> removed though. But you know, everything is so dark right now in terms oh. of uh, fiction and that's not how I feel. And so I'm yeah. constantly hungry for books where mm. it doesn't all turn out like crap, you know, where right. things ending. like we do today, mm. every like 99% of the country today <laughs> is going to go home and be okay. Right. And yet we focus and we we sure. we hyper focus yes. on the catastrophe, right. and we forget that today in Los Angeles, almost all of us went home and had a decent day, and yes. we're breathing cleaner air than we did ever before, and right. and and mm-hmm. and we look past the bounty and we see only the absence. And yes. so I want to fu- I want to write. I started writing this this mm-hmm. um, utopian version. Oh, okay. Because oh. I walked out of a restaurant and I saw three young people walking down Melrose, and I thought. Mm-hmm. You know, they're young and it was like 10 o'clock at night. I had just had a really terrible date. And I was like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I was thinking, gosh, where was I when I was like, you know, whatever, 60 years old yes. on a Tuesday uh, or something. Yes. And I thought, wow. Huh. So I, I want to consume more positive stories. So mm-hmm. I thought, gosh, I'm going to write one. And so I'm working on a little. Oh, novella. Cool. So optimistic sci-fi. Optimistic you, but, everything. Even yeah, my memoir, I hope yes. you found to be optimistic. That's awesome. Yeah. That's one of the great things in life. If you can, uh, you know, have that personality. So, David, where can we uh, hear more about you, your uh, website, any things to connect with you and, uh, and your, what you're doing? Gosh, my biggest thing is I ask people to follow me on uh, social media, H-J-D-A-M-B-R-O-Z, H-J-D Ambrose yep. on Instagram and at Dave Ambrose on Twitter. And then my website is davidambrose.com. And, and the reason the website's awesome, too, is it has links to get active in your community. So my nonprofit yes. can help you hyper-localize engagement around any of these issues. And then um, if you find me on social media and you have great stories to amplify, problematic or beautiful, hit me up with them. And I'm trying to create a movement not for foster care, but for children, mm-hmm. especially children in poverty. And I'm trying to amplify those stories by creating a, uh, I call it Dumbledore's Army. So an army of great people out there that want the good to win. And we have to amplify not what we had for dinner with cute pictures, but great and important and beautiful and heartbreaking stories. So that's what I've tried to do with my social media today. Fantastic. And what's your website one more time for our listeners? Absolutely. DavidAmbrose.com. So it's David, A-M-B-R-O-Z, like zebra. Oh, Z. No no E. A-M-B-R-O-Z, DavidAmbrose.com. Well, David, it's been a wonderful pleasure having you this morning, early uh, LA time. And uh, your message is very powerful. It's inspiring. And I love your optimism. 
And I know you want to make a positive change. And basically, it's about love here at Love Universally, yeah. loving yourself, others, and a higher nature. Yeah. So you're pretty much doing that in your work and bringing uh, children and families together. That's a beautiful thing. So uh, it's been a pleasure. I'd love to have you on again when you have something Absolutely. going on. It'd be great to do that. So again, this is Dr. Alex Avila with Love University. Thank you, David, for being on the show. Put away your notebook, your iPad, your phones, and class is now dismissed. Dr. Avila. Hi, David. Uh, that was a wrap. How did you how did you find that? I think you're it's amazing. You're like a, a midwife of uh, uh, thoughts. So oh, thank you. it's <laughs> really good. You know, I've got a few yes. uh, interviews. It's you know, you have a beautiful way. Thank I you. also think you have an incredible voice. I was thinking while you were talking, I my favorite podcaster, sorry everybody, is shockingly Terry Gross. And oh. I was like, Oh, you have such a nice okay. way about you of you. excavating yes. information and uh, guiding. So Yes. It was great. I really appreciate the appreciate platform, that. and I love what you do. Thanks, David. So we'll be in touch, and uh, send me your uh, your contact, your phone, and a lot. Maybe we can connect in person someday. Yeah. I'll email right now. Yes. Right. What's your favorite food? Uh, do you have, like any restaurants in town? Oh, in Los Angeles, I, my go to is a couple restaurants: Spartina on Melrose, mm. okay, and that's one of my favorites. John and Vinny's on Fairfax. Is that Italian or what is a Spartina? John and Vinny's is is kind of a more modern take on Italian. It's delicious. Oh, it's okay. not like that kind of bucket of red sauce. And then okay. in Silver Lake. Los Feliz is uh, Kismet, which is oh, okay. my, so good. You love it, though. Oh, okay. my, my family is uh, Cuban and, and Spain, so I don't know if you ever. Oh, El Conchonita. Oh, yes? Uh, in, in Silver Lake. And, you know, I used to live in Spain. Uh, oh, I used okay, to live yeah. in Pais Basco. Paella, um, all that kind of stuff, and tapas. Like tapas. Oh, yeah. They called me Lechuga in Spain because I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> exactly. um, and I was having. All right. Well, I appreciate you. Thank you so much. It's and thank a you, producer. I appreciate you. Have a wonderful day. We'll talk soon. Bye. So that was a great interview live at the Los Angeles Book Festival at USC. We had an amazing time, and this is a great opportunity to interview these wonderful authors and people that have a message that's going to help others. So, love you, university students. If you want to be on the show in the future, or if you have a show idea and want to comment on today's show, you can reach us at 310-226-8090. You can write to us at loveuniversitylove at gmail.com. You can visit us at loveuniversally.love. You can also download the podcast on Podbean, Spotify, SoundCloud, and iTunes. You can like us and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Love University Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Love Letter U Podcast. And you can also go to our YouTube channel, Love University. So until next time, this is Dr. Alex Avila. It's time to put away your notebooks, your iPads, your phones. And class is now dismissed. Love yourself, others, and a higher nature. Until next time.